Welcome back to Radical Ones. As always, I'm here with my producer, Phineas. Phineas, we've got a great guest today. Can you share who we're chatting with? Absolutely. This week we have Scott Heckinger, who is a New York-based public defender and founder of a nonprofit organization called Zealous, where he focuses on expanding the impact of other public defenders through media, social media, advocacy campaigns, and many other things. It's a resource for public defenders across the country. Like many guests we have on the show, he basically sits... I think what we're really interested in is people like that are on the vanguard of social problems, right? And so we talked to Nick Malvoin, who's engaging with like a relatively poor education system in LA that's surfacing all these problems. Scott Heckinger is a really good example of someone, and, and public defenders in general are a good example of folks who are, they're being beat over the head with the injustice of our criminal justice system, right? They are defending back to back to back to back poor people being punished for either poverty, mental illness, a lack of support, lack of economic opportunity, whatever that is, and then being thrown away by a system that just, you know, it's a monster, it devours people. And so as he was working within the Brooklyn Public Defenders, he started using his own social media as a means of telling the stories he was witnessing, right? And letting more people know about it. And, you know, like similar to me and your journey with this show, like the more you hear about a justice system, the more your jaw drops. And you're like, I can't believe this is real, that we would do that to someone that's in this position, et cetera. And so because he's he's a good storyteller, he's a good writer, and he really kind of understood Twitter, uh, he started picking up this following. And things started happening because these people's stories were being told, right? Other people were engaging, politicians were being pressured, people started understanding the importance of progressive DAs, et cetera. And so him understanding that, Sky is not on like a hero's journey where like he just wants to continue to build his own personal brand. He's like, oh, this is a really useful tool. And I want other public defenders all over the country to be able to do this and also, you know, have this organization that can learn from each other. We can all learn from each other what's working, what's not. We can have shared resources and public defender advocacy can be a, an important tool on the path to the justice reform reckoning we desperately need in this country. How would you describe the problem you're solving? The problem I'm solving at the end of the day is uh, the cruelty, the inhumanity, the human cost, the fiscal cost, the racism, the lack of health, and the fact that our criminal legal system undermines public health and safety. So the, the problem I'm trying to solve is ending that mess and completely transforming it. The way I'm trying to solve it in collaboration with a range of incredible folks is trying to push, not just push back, against the prevailing narrative that has been present for the last half century and beyond uh, this idea that in more incarceration, more policing, more prosecution makes us safe and healthy uh, and infuse right. that dialogue with with more nuance. So it's, it's about shaping uh, the narrative that has been overtaken by procarceral forces for decades. I hear that line a lot. Like we need to shape the narrative. It's such a, a wild undertaking <laughs> to try to change like a cultural narrative, especially some at 
a narrative that's like as deeply embedded as like bad guys are bad and you know to to stop bad guys you need to hurt them i've talked about in the show before it's like marvel movies this is what like the premise right it's like our earliest childhood stories there's a premise of like bad guys without agendas that are going to only care about harming people and the way we stop that is by throwing them in cages or in marvel's case killing them most often and so it's just quite the undertaking to reverse that narrative that you're talking about. Like, how, how does one go about that? <laughs> so you're right. I mean, this black and white narrative, both figuratively, actually, and, and, and in reality, it's just so simple. It's so easy um, for people to digest. Totally. In the media, in popular media, in traditional media, reporters, it's just easy to go with uh, there is bad and there is evil and there's this like quick and easy solution, even if the data doesn't support it. The way that we, or the way that I've, and then the organization I run, Zealous, has been taking this problem on is first kind of trying to activate a an important voice that hasn't really been activated outside of court, public defenders. The public defenders are these criminal justice champions on the ground, in court, every day, fighting against the system, representing people who are directly impacted, who are crushed by over-criminalization, over-policing, incarceration, but have traditionally not stepped outside of court and joined the movement in any real meaningful capacity to end mass criminalization. And so what we're trying to do and what, I, what, what we did when I was at Brooklyn Defender Services working as a public defender is kind of rethink um, how defenders advocate. Yes, we right. fight jealously in court, but we can also leverage our perspective and expertise and also the relationships with the people who we represent if done right not only to join the conversation but help shape it help lead it um and so that's one way but the thing that i'll just say really quickly is that we realized early on was that it's not enough just for defenders to speak up we have to recognize that there are just also deeply embedded um, issues with power dynamics between defenders and the people that they represent right built up issues of trust because of the perception of defenders and because of the reality that is that a lot of public defenders throughout history have not been there for the people that they represent. So bottom line, when you ask, how does one do that? This, this person at least is trying to, trying to support defenders in collaboration with the people that they represent, organizers and frankly artists to move their advocacy out of, out of court in an ethical and effective way. Just kind of like two steps to this question there's one where it's you become a public defender i wonder did you get into that practice as someone who was like looking to reform the system or was this there like a sequence of events how quickly on did that happen before you're like oh it's not enough to just take on these cases there's this bigger atrocity that i have to be a part of like what what was your story on that front you know i should i should have known better coming into brooklyn defender services that you know, the, my idealistic self of being able to tilt the imbalance of the system one client at a time was right. not going to actually work. I started my first ever law gig while I was in law school. I was in one of the first intern classes of the New Orleans public defenders right after, like soon after Katrina, when there hadn't been a public defender office before. And I saw the head of the office, Steve Singer, literally, it seemed like every other day getting dragged out in cuffs by officers after judges held him in contempt for making simple legal arguments. So I should have, I should have known better. I was up against <laughs> public, you know, uh, Brooklyn Defender Services. We had pretty remarkable resources, especially compared to other places: social workers, investigators, paralegal support staff, relatively low caseloads, and still 
because of the just the power of the status quo that because of mandatory minimums which terrified people out of going to trial because of pretrial detention that made people want to plead guilty whether they were guilty or, or not or whether they had been stopped and frisked unconstitutionally still drove 95 percent of convictions coming from guilty pleas even in that setting and so early on became really frustrated with my with my inability and the inability of public defenders to change the systems that systematically were devastating the people we represented in ways we could identify. And so after, you know, a year of being in arraignments every day, working on lower level misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies and seeing people pleading guilty before they even had bail set, I joined forces with another colleague of mine. And after like a cursing session, because that's how defenders go a lot, they go and we talk to each other, um, he mentioned potentially starting a bail fund. And through that effort, I wound up helping to co-found with a range of other folks this bail fund, the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, which paid bail for people who were accused of misdemeanors, $2,000 or less, with the idea that we could prove the point that bail is unnecessary. I saw for the first time how, even while I was fighting in court, how I not only just was able to leverage my experience and expertise in doing something outside of court on this issue, right. also through that, realized that it wasn't enough for me to just talk about how bad the issue was. It also wasn't enough for me to just be like, oh, let's find a person who's directly impacted and have them tell their story. That's not right either. There's exploitation involved in that. So we actually went and worked with people who we had represented, worked to ensure that they actually had full agency over not only their story, but were partners in this campaign. And instead of raising $70,000 like we wanted to in the first year, that was a pipe dream. We raised two and a half million and bailed over a thousand wow. people out. And that showed there was like a number of things that that showed right off the bat that like that defenders can both fight in court and broaden their advocacy outside of it, that defenders do have perspective that can shift hearts and minds. I mean, we were mostly raising money from rich white people who at that point back in 2012 thought of the world in black and white people that are going to Rikers are criminals. But we also learned that it wasn't enough just for us to explain the issue. Why do you think there wasn't more storytelling? Was it, is it not? Because like you hear what's happening in our justice system from folks like yourself, you know, your perspective and the people you represent, their perspective. And the injustices are obvious. These aren't like intellectual arguments on how fucked up things are, right? What do you think it was? Why weren't we using these stories? Was it a sense of like culture wasn't quite there yet, even if we did use the stories? I think the reason why it wasn't done more and it still isn't done more, and which is why the fight, you know, that's one of our major advocacy goals is, you know, a range of those things. It's A, you know, it's caseloads, right? People, you know, mm. defenders, like we're, we already are you know, so jam-packed just trying to do everything we can to represent every one of the people we're representing in a meaningful way. How can we possibly take on more? And there's actually ways to do this. There is concern. There are concerns about, you know, that we are not experts. Like, I don't know how to, you know, defenders will be like, I don't know how to talk to press. And like, won't that hurt the people we represent, well, you're, you're not thinking then about there's lots of other ways to approach press proactively. But we can, as an office, identify systemic issues that we see every day that no one else is writing about and proactively pitch that. That's another thing, though. You know, they're just like, how do we talk to press? Social media, there's a lot of discomfort around that. And telling stories or talking even, getting even close to talking about client work or the, in, the individuals who we're representing, even with consent or anonymized, is, you know, fraught work. Uh, there's a lot of fear about ethics. There's fear about exploitation. There's fear about, um, and this is all legitimate. There's fear about coming across as like, 
you know, white, you know, a lot of, you know, white public defenders don't want to be seen or, or, or perceived as white saviors. And so there's totally. this, this uh, hesitation, both imposed from the outside, you know, journalists don't come to us. Traditionally, people don't to talk about these issues. They go to the prosecutors and police. And there's also a self-imposed aspect to it. So let's fast forward a bit. So 2012, you get your first sense of that you can have an impact beyond this case-by-case impact, you know, show, showing up and defending individuals through this bail fund. 2019 Zealous Launch, what did that trip between 2012 and launching this bail fund kind of feeling your power a little bit or a, a, a greater power than this case-by-case power to launching Zealous? What was that story arc? The, the story arc was continuing to practice in court, representing folks in more serious cases, becoming the director of policy at Brooklyn Defender Services while I was still practicing, which I thought was was important for me because I, I love practicing. I like working with directly with people. And it was really important because it informed the policy work we were doing. So, And then within that, it was from a traditional media standpoint, it was creating system, uh, systems within the office to proactively pitch to press. So things like things that like we screamed about in the halls and like no one was writing about, like black single mothers being arrested for leaving their kids alone for short periods of time because they didn't, they couldn't afford childcare and getting arrested for endangering the welfare of their children, getting their kids taken away for six right. months, charged with the mean misdemeanor, put permanently on the ACS registry and pitching that with people who had gone through that to the New York times and having that not only come out, but also change the practice and that those arrests totally decreased. It was, it was starting to, to tweet from court and hold actors accountable in real time. You started tweeting from your personal account and then all of a sudden that was starting to gain traction as well. And, and not just gain traction in terms of likes and retweets, but have it have a material impact on what was happening. I was seeing not only so an example was you know, I'd be in arraignments and uh, the mayor had just announced that he was not going to be no more arrests for marijuana. And a couple days later, I saw arrests for THC and being and they were being charged as possession of a controlled substance, which was even a more serious misdemeanor. And I started, right. you know, saying like, you know, what is this about? And it turned into a city council hearing within a week. It was it was all over the news and it changed practice right away. And then bail reform happened and, you know, ended cash bail for the vast majority of misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. And that was not public defenders. That wasn't me making that happen. It was the efforts of folks on the ground who have been working for decades, communities, movements, et cetera. But it also, the, the movement did involve public defenders in a way that had never happened before, both in front and behind the scenes. Right. And after that happened, defenders from around the country were like, what the hell are you guys doing in New York? Like, are we allowed to do this? Tell me more. That's just like kind of those kinds of questions picked up and decided that maybe instead of like having each one of these calls on a case-by-case basis or like going out and talking about right. what we were doing in Brooklyn... Um, why don't we bring folks in? And so we got a nice grant to be able to fly literally 55 defenders from 42 different offices in 27 different states into Brooklyn for an immersive, intensive training on all these skills that we didn't learn in law school. Things from how to connect with the people you're representing, how to break down barriers of mistrust with the people, uh, the communities um, and, and movements and organizers, how to um, do advocacy storytelling like look we're storytellers in court as public defenders but it's very different right. when you're not limited by just either having to write an emotion or orally advocate to one person who happens to know every one of the worst things the person you're representing has been accused of doing and actually have 
all of these different communication methods, being able to choose who the messenger is, not just have you be the voice piece in court, um, and have an audience of potentially of, of potentially uh, millions, traditional media, social media. But we didn't, and, and we we helped, we drove the creation of this curriculum. But importantly, it was leaders in these variety of disciplines, not only who helped create this curriculum for defenders, but taught it. And it was mostly organizers, mostly people with direct experience. It was poets, it was journalists, it was, you know, policy, communications folks, and it was an extraordinary experience, man. So now you, you all are bringing in defenders from across the country to train them. And this is too like, this is kind of a catch-all phrase on, on like an advocacy, right? Beyond the courtroom. Yes. Can you give us a story of someone that has gone through your program, applied the lessons and had a positive outcome just so we can contextualize this thing? Absolutely. So I uh, let's talk. Let's talk Prince George's County. I mean, this is a recent this is a recent example. It's not just a person. So um, in Prince George's County, Maryland, it's 70 uh, percent black, um, something like that. And they have right now the first uh, black state's attorney, so top prosecutor there. Um, a woman, Aisha Braveboy, in, in, in their history. Public defenders were banging their heads against the wall, like in so many other places across the country, fighting zealously in court Yet the, during COVID, yet the judges were still filing boilerplate denial motions to get the release, even though they knew that the jail was a COVID hotspot, even though they knew that it was impossible to social distance, they weren't getting PPE, uh, people were reporting just horrific conditions. At the same time, the uh, local organizers from Life After Release, it was a, it's actually a participatory defense hub, but led by two formerly incarcerated women, had one person in court watch and was filing accountability letters and saying, you know, Aisha Braveboy, you got to be doing things differently. Nothing was changing. And Civil Rights Corps, it's a major litigation shop, had filed a lawsuit against the jail and submitted 60 sworn declarations from people who were on the inside, firsthand accounts of the horror of jail, and they were just asking for some releases and at the same time for just improved conditions. That judge, who was a, an Obama nominee, rejected those sworn declarations as unhelpful and only marginally relevant and actually complained that she couldn't call the wheat from the chaff. They called us in. The defenders called us in and they said, look, nothing is working. And, and this, was, um, you know, this was actually a chief defender who hadn't come through our training yet, but had seen what we were doing around the country. We came in. The first thing we said was, where are your partners? Like, who are your local local partners? We said, well, we, we work with Life After Release. Well, let's bring them in. Civil Rights Corps came in as well, and we listened. Uh, we worked with them. We talked. We we talked to them about the range of of the skills that we talked that we talked about. We had a core group of defenders, core group from the organizers, um, and we brought in artists. We brought in Broadway Advocacy Coalition and came up collectively with the strategy. So going back to this, like this thing that we were going to work on together with the short-term goal of solving a problem, long-term goal of building capacity. And we developed this project called Gasping for Justice, where we didn't have cell phone footage inside the jail. Again, everyone it was status quo. Nothing was changing. We had Broadway actors. Uh, we, had sing, we had singers like Fiona Apple, actors like Alec Baldwin and Jesse Williams, poets like Dwayne Betts, read these 60 sworn declarations to camera with, mm. with the... Um, the consent of uh, consent of the families and consent of the folks that were inside, and published them um, as kind of a reshaping of legal advocacy, and and the results were were immediate. Went from an audience of one to an audience of over two million who saw this. The court watch program went from a volunteer of one to a volunteer of one hundred seventy five. Twenty thousand petition signatures. 
the county came to the settlement negotiations. The court watch program wound up holding because they had 175, the judges accountable, and they stopped setting as much bail. Aisha Braveboy, the state's attorney, who at that point was insulated from any kind of accountability, ended up having to go on all these radio shows and basically defend the indefensible. Howard Law School got involved, and they got involved not only in court watch, but generated this, this report. And the effort continues. Um, and initially, the the numbers of folks who were on the inside went down. Unfortunately, they've gone back up again, like the rest of the, the rest of the country. We're still trying to hold the, their feet to the fire, and that's an ongoing effort. But the yeah. true success, and I don't want to say like you know, honestly, the, the best success in the entire world, you know, world immediately would be that people would have been released. But in terms of the the longer term effort that we're working on, the defenders. Life after and life after release, defenders and the local community are working together in a way they've never worked together before. I imagine that's the gift that just keeps on giving. Once the, once those two groups are connected and they also understand how to work a campaign like the one you just outlined, they become a powerful force for not just that issue but so many issues. It's amazing. You know, I come in and it's like they pitch the story to the Washington Post about the courts trying to shut down Court Watch and now they're right. eating and planning this whole campaign around it. And it's like, that's just the, the next piece. And what is this going to look like years down the road? It's just going to build and build and build. And so that that's what we're talking about. So, so my last big question is, if you're as successful as possible, if everything that you want to ha- have happen happens, what is true about the world 10 years from now? The legal system at the end of the day, the criminal legal system with, will be significantly smaller, significantly fairer, and significantly less racist. Um, it'll be truly transformed. That is a is, is massively optimistic. Uh, the way that we get there are these collaborative advocacy hubs throughout the country. It is practitioners broadly defined. It's not just defenders. It's not just, and when I say defenders, I don't mean criminal defense practitioners. I mean, social justice lawyers in education and housing and in in, in family defense, in immigration. I also mean organizers in terms of, in social workers, in terms of practitioners, working collaboratively with community, people with direct experience, uh, family members of those with direct experience, and artists. If we can actually uh, develop those collaborative advocacy hubs across the country, I think we are taking that you know so-called 50-state solution. We are going to be chipping away with that North Star of real transformational change, not just the big R reform. Um, that's what, you know, 10 years from now looks like. And the way to do that is, again, totally transform the way we do criminal legal work. It's a beautiful vision. All right, we're all done. I just want to give you the floor before we get out of there to say whatever you want to say. I think we all, at least folks who are in social justice work, if you're doing the work, you know that during COVID, it's somehow it's taken on you know, even more of a urgency and more of kind of a pressing nature. You're doing as much as you possibly can. And all I can say is just be real about your own mental health and well-being. Be comfortable talking to folks who you trust about it because unless we are real with ourselves and healthy with ourselves, and believe me, I need to do a lot more work on this, uh, we're not going to be able to continue doing the work and we're going to get burnt out. So just like, be kind to yourselves. I'm saying that I'm, I'm just going to say this to me, Scott, be kind to yourself and the rest of y'all, be kind. <laughs> everyone be kind to yourself. Cause I, I don't want it to come across. Like I know how to do this. Like be kinder, be kind to yourself. You're doing everything that you possibly can do. 
Um, right. uh, keep fighting. Be be and and continue to seek out strategic partnerships and good uh, good folks doing the good work. But be real about your own mental health, and and it's okay. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be burnt out. It's okay to be tired. <laughs> Sky Hagenger, thank you for being on the show, man. I really appreciate you and appreciate everything you're doing in the world. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And um, I'm always here to be as helpful as I can. So uh, know that. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care. <laughs>